Welcome to the Taekwondo Daddy Podcast, a resource for martial arts students and parents by martial arts student and parents Logan Ramirez. Taekwondo Daddy, train hard, parent hard. Arguably the most frustrating piece of parenting for me is watching my kids cry over things that I know they shouldn't be crying over. Um, and, and admittedly the way I respond to that probably isn't the best. I mean, I'm kind of a believer in boy, you better quit crying before I give you something to cry about or, um, and just go to your room and, and <laughs> finish crying, then come back or, uh, or just shutting it down. No, 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 don't cry. <laughs> and, um, man, you know, I don't know. I don't think that's like the best way to handle that. And I know that. And what's even more frustrating about knowing that is I know crying is inevitable with my kids. But another place it's inevitable is at the dojo. Um, at least if you're at a dojing that takes martial arts seriously, because in those places, your child's going to be pushed to limits they've not faced before, um, put in situations that aren't just new, but overwhelming. Um, you know, in, in, in sparring with someone who's bigger than you, maybe twice your size, even though you know they're going to have control, that's still intimidating. Being pushed physically during workouts beyond what you think you can handle is, is uh, exhausting. Um, being, being yelled at or disciplined uh, by a stranger, um, you, know, uh, you know, a new instructor or whatever, these are all recipes that lead toward crying. Um, so, you know, as we talked about in, in a previous episode about what to expect when you put your, your student in martial arts, um, crying, that's to be expected. And so the question then arises for me as an, as an instructor um, and as a parent, if I so greatly dislike my own kids crying, how am I going to handle other people's kids crying? And aside from realizing how sad it is that it took me thinking of other kids crying um, and not my own to start questioning my, my parental response to crying at all, uh, it got me thinking even more broadly. What is the best way to handle kids crying? Um, is there even a best? I mean, I think there has to be, or at least some some gradient scale. And and I believe that, you know, man, knock it off is probably is probably on the 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 lower end of that scale. Um but, you know, I don't really know anything. Um, you know, so I did what any reasonable person who runs a martial arts podcast would do. I I called up a clinical psychologist. Hi, I'm Dr. Jamie Furr. I am a clinical assistant professor at Florida International University at the Center for Children and Families in Miami, Florida. Now, in addition to being a clinical assistant professor, Dr. Furr is also the senior psychologist for MINT at Florida International University, the Mental Health Interventions and Technology Program, which is a clinical research program which essentially aims to understand uh, mental health problems affecting children and developing new methods to treat them. And on top of that, she's helped direct a selective mutism program for young children with anxiety and other difficulties. In other words, if there was a black belt system for social and emotional needs in children, I think we could all agree that Dr. Fur is up there in the black belt levels, if not a master. Um, yeah, I, doubt, I doubt she would consider herself that high, but I certainly do. And um, she not only deals with 
crying children in her day job, but she has kids of her own. I do. I have two children. Um, I have a seven and a half year old daughter and a five year old son, and they're wonderful. Ages five and seven, probably right smack in the middle of the age we tend to think of with whiny, crying kids, or at least that's the age I think of because I have five and seven year olds who are whiny and crying. Um, so anyway, I asked Dr. Fur about crying in general and why it's so important. And she pointed out that first we have to understand crying is communication. That When we are crying, we're actually kind of, if you think about babies and infants, like they're crying out because they have a certain need um, and that's their only way of communicating that need, right? So either they're, they're hungry, they're tired, they're, they need something. And as we get older, um, kids continue to kind of use that method at times when they're, they're either in need of, um, it often crying can actually bring a fair amount of um, empathy and pro-social behavior in those around them. So if you hear, for some people, if they hear their child crying, they're going to go to them and try to figure out what's going on. What's wrong? Why are you hurt? Um, and so I think this is where sometimes it can kind of differ, kind of split in terms of how you respond to to the crying, right? And sort of the function of the crying. Um, what is their behavior trying to attain? So if they're if they're actually hurt, then I assume that most people like myself are going to be empathic. We're going to comfort them. We're going to support them, show them love, and you know take care of whatever is hurting them. Um, if they're crying to seek attention, possibly in a negative way, um, or they're crying and there's no real reason that they're crying um, that you can figure out, then oftentimes our response is kind of different. So sometimes that is um, where we're going to sort of promote them, their ability to self-soothe and help them regulate their emotions and, and learn like, okay, well, I'm crying, but that crying is eventually going to just stop and go away, especially if there's something that's going to distract them or we're not there providing comfort in those moments when it, they're just, they're crying for for attention. So first crying is communication. I mean, that's our starting point here. They are trying to tell us something. And, you know, a classic mantra I've heard people say is that wise people seek first to understand, then to be understood. And personally, I think that applies to all forms of communication, crying included. But then she brings up this idea of self-soothing, letting the kids figure it out themselves. And that's what I think we miss, or at least I miss, when I intervene too fast, either to comfort or, or to squash the behavior. And as they get older, um, I would say even by five, six, seven, we're really probably younger than that. It's a little harder for them to always use their words to explain how they're feeling. But we want to promote them to use feeling words and expressions and to allow them to say, I'm sad, I'm angry, I'm frustrated, I'm um, I'm happy, so happy that I'm crying, which again, we tend to see more of in older kids and, and, and adults. But um, we want them to be able to try to use their words. And that really does kind of onset around five, six, seven. And again, sometimes you'll notice that not even adults are able to really share the, the feelings that they're having. Oh, no, she didn't. Oh, yes, she did. Her girlfriends would be all wrapped up in licious. <sighs> all wrapped up. Um, and so this is something that we can teach them. You know, it seems like you're feeling kind of sad right now. Um, tell me why you're feeling sad. Um, so that we're, again, getting them out of just the crying process, but we're teaching them about feelings and emotion, ex emotional expression. I couldn't help it. I had to get in there and razz that part about 
the adults. But that next part about us teaching, teaching them, teaching kids to use their words, that was a really big takeaway. The first big takeaway I got from this, this uh, interview that, look, obviously the kid's crying for a reason. Um, they're obviously trying to communicate something, but we usually don't think about it as communication. But still, rather than jump in and squash it or let them get away with it, let them get away with the attention they're trying to get, um, I actually have this responsibility or or maybe more um, poetically, this opportunity in that moment right there to teach this child something that even adults struggle with using their words. That, look, okay, I understand you're crying uh, but if you want my help, five, six, seven, eight-year-old, um, then I need you to use some words. You need to tell me what's going on. And look, I will help you. Seriously, how spot on is Dr. Fur that even adults struggle with this? Uh, how much better would, would the whole world be um, if we taught children at an early age how to effectively communicate these emotions that are stirring inside of them? Okay, so let's recap. First, recognize that crying is communication, albeit a frustrating form of it, but a form of communication nonetheless, and one that you know children in particular use when they lack the tool set to communicate any other way. Now, as children get older, that right there, the lacking of the tool set, that is the responsibility that we have as shepherds of children, as coaches, instructors, parents, teachers. We share this responsibility to help teach them that the way they're acting, the emotional crying, um, a better way to handle that is with their words. Um, now, that's that's not, um, you know, that's not, I don't think that's obvious or... Um, or not intimidating. I mean, that is a huge responsibility to, to say we own, but I think it's right, especially as parents and especially in an activity like martial arts where you're around the children so much. Um, but right there, I mean, when it's happening, we are at the forefront of that little beautiful brain forming these lifelong patterns associating crying and how to handle it, how to communicate through it. And in those instances, those moments, those cumulative moments, every time we have a chance to interact in that brain-forming moment, that is how they are going to interact with the world for the rest of their life. Now, admittedly, in a martial arts setting, on a dojo, during sparring, during activities, this is not um, particularly easy to implement. It's We just can't... Um, you know, stop everything and focus on every kid. Or as, uh, you know, Kimberly Sweet Brown Wilkins said when escaping a fire, ain't nobody got time for that. <laughs> and, and, and we really don't for several reasons. I mean, one, there may be lots of kids on the floor and all of them require attention. Um, you know, it can create safety issues. Um, another is the Dojang isn't a place where everybody feels free to talk anytime you want. Um, so even if a child wants to use their words, the tradition tells them, hey, you need to be quiet and, and raise your hand. Um, and, and again, Ain't nobody got time for that. and I mean, we really don't, I mean, you, you, there's so many things going on the floor, but I, I, I still think that is more reason why we have to be intentional with this. We have to think about these issues beforehand because we're going to encounter them 
all the time with every student. And so we have to have something in place either during class or, or, um, or after or before or parent sessions or when possible during, um, during the times that it is too hard. Because after all, as martial artists, when have we ever let it's too hard or it's inconvenient be an acceptable excuse for not training. I mean, that is at the center of what it means to be an experienced martial artist is you, you push through the things that are too hard and you have a mindset toward excellence. So how is that any different when we want to apply it to uh, the emotional well-being of our, of our students and parents to the emotional well-being of our children? Um, but, you know, regardless, as it turns out, Dr. Fur already knew that and openly stated, hey, the context is huge, you know. Um, and so sometimes the best thing to do, um, especially given limited time constraints, is is uh, to distract them, um, to get them to do something else because... They're trying to use that method to, again, a- obtain some sort of attention. And oftentimes it comes as negative attention from the parents, right? Stop crying. Don't do that. Um, and so actually if we sort of... Um, encourage sort of their taking a break, their time to calm down. You know, um, I'm a believer in, in timeout. Um, if it's kind of fostered along with time, kind of the positive time with the parent, um, to, to teach them those other types of things that they can do to help themselves in that moment. Um, so that it doesn't kind of result in crying, but the timeout is really a way for them to learn and continued learning on self-soothing and self-regulation. So now, while I wouldn't recommend a timeout in, in a martial arts setting, certainly at home, um, with a parent, I agree with Dr. Fur, a company with positive parent time, uh, it makes a lot of sense. But but the, the, the bigger picture is that there's this fundamental process children need to go through so they can discover self-soothing and self-regulation on their own. And, and often I've mistaken uh, my instruction, which in this case is the crying child when I'm just abruptly cutting them short saying, hey, stop crying. Um, that's not instruction. That's me avoiding pain myself. I don't like them crying. And, and I also don't want them to have that, that, um, that disposition and that attitude and that response. But guess what? They're going to learn that either way. And so this was a huge revelation for me because while I have let my infants self-soothe by crying themselves to, to sleep, um, I'd never bucketed the idea of timeouts or directing kids to another activity or distraction as effective self-soothing techniques in older children. Um, in other words, um, I didn't see that as a learning process for them. And so even though our distress may increase while they're still distressed and they're crying and they're upset we have to kind of continuously remind ourselves that they're, they're learning, they're learning how to tolerate these difficult situations. Um, And it doesn't mean that they, that they're not allowed to cry. It just means the crying kind of in and of itself is, is likely to kind of look like a wave where it's going to go up and then eventually it's going to come down, right? They eventually stop crying. And they do. I mean, they do eventually stop crying. Now, um, sometimes, probably every time it takes longer than we seem to have patience for. But children and adults, humans, we all recover and eventually the crying does stop. The only question that remains then is what did we do in that time in between the start and the stop in that window of opportunity when they were most vulnerable um, at the peak of struggling to communicate what they were feeling? What did we do to help them along this emotional journey 
to understand themselves better. Now, look, I'm not an expert on this, and Dr. Furr admitted also that she's only bringing one view to the table. Um, I did an interview lots of child psychologists for this podcast, but I don't think you need to be an expert to agree that what we do in those moments matters. And that's the big thing I keep thinking about, that I, I don't quite know what to do, but I know what I do matters. So don't I then have a responsibility to improve learning what it is that I do, how I'm going to influence the children who I interact with, my own kids and the ones on the mat. Ultimately, it influences the way they will interact with the world. And I think that's something that all of us need to at least be aware of um, in a way that motivates. And then if we can do that, then I think we'll all, especially as martial artists, work towards improving that. So I asked Dr. Fur if she thought, should crying be allowed at all in the dojang? And and again, she's not a martial artist. She doesn't have experience sparring, um, working with kids in the act of of physical exercise like training. Um, But still, I thought her reason um, for it was interesting and not quite what I expected. The crying should be kind of allowed in some ways because eventually they're going to learn that that crying doesn't get them anywhere, right? Without being specifically told stop crying, it's not going to get you anywhere. I bet over a period of several, you know, lessons that they would learn that almost on their own, because the crying isn't necessarily getting them out of the sparring. It's not getting them um, that avoidance that they may be seeking if they're feeling anxious. In other words, as long as they're still required to do the activity, well, who cares if they're crying at all? I mean, other than safety issues that can come up while sparring, which are absolutely real. Dr. Furr even brought it up during our conversation. It's not safe. It may not be safe if a, if a child's crying and then continuing to do an activity. But if they're safe, who cares if they're crying? Um, as far as our role goes in the journey to help them discover the empowering ability to not cry or communicate, why even acknowledge it at all when we can and perhaps should encourage them simply to just keep going And that, in fact, was exactly where Dr. Fur was headed. I dealt with this with my son when he was doing baseball um, for the first time. And he was he was pretty young, um, didn't want to play, was on the sidelines crying, you know, and um, the it was kind of a fine line between sort of kind of actively ignoring the crying and promoting and praising any approach behavior he had. So even if I was taking his hand and taking him to the field, even though he did not want to be there. I'm like, yay, thanks for coming with me. I love how you're moving onto the field. Um, you're doing a great job being here, even though it's new, you know, really trying to bolster his confidence, even though it was like as far from what he wanted to do. Um, and the coaches kind of did a similar thing where it was a lot about distraction. Oh, they would roll the ball to him so that again, his focus would shift to to the sport rather than focusing on like how bad he felt or how much he didn't want to be in that, in that, on that field. But again, where you're kind of using, we're not necessarily attending to the crying and we're attending to, um, you know, the way we talk about it is kind of like approach behavior. So anything going towards the goal that we want them to be on the field or in the, you know, in the sparring ring. 
Uh, this idea of actively ignoring and positive approach behaviors totally new to me. And and I, and as a parent, I mean, I love this idea that that while a kid is crying, again, I don't even need to acknowledge it. They're going to stop eventually. My job, my what I can do to teach in that moment is is actively ignore it. So I'm in, I'm giving the child attention, but I'm not giving them attention to what they're doing. That's what I don't want them to do. Instead, I don't even tell them what I don't want them to do. I, I encourage them by telling them what I do want them to do, which is the approach behavior that they, they move toward the goal. Hey, just keep sparring. Keep your hands up. Be safe in there. You know, hey, man, get out of the way. Dodge. Um, and eventually, um, you know, again, assuming they're safe, uh, they're, they're going to figure it out. Um, but at the same time, is that realistic in a class of 20 kids or 30 kids all who need your attention? Um you know, I, I don't know. Here's, here's Dr. Fergan on, on that. Um, because you're right. Like they don't have time to sit there and watch this kid cry for 20 minutes, but if they can get them back in the ring, even if they do that, why, like by taking their hand, okay, we're going back in the ring. I know you can do it. Like, this is going to be awesome. I remember when you were able to spar and you got this other thing last time go, you know, like where you're kind of just putting them right back into this situation. Because again, what ends up happening you know, in my experience and my expertise is more in the field of anxiety. So that's where I tend to go with these things and these thoughts, but it can cause them to want to continue to avoid if they avoid it and it's successful, right? Like it decreases their sense of anxiety for, you know, because they've gotten out of the situation. But what we know is that if we actually put them back into the situation again, and they can have even a partially successful experience, that's going to be really rewarding and, and um, promoting for them to want to, to do it again. I've casually mentioned it uh, already, but just so I'm clear, telling a child to stop crying or letting a child get out of the activity are both super tempting and common responses to children crying. But they are, to use a martial arts analogy, white belt moves. Um, they're what beginners do who haven't yet learned a better technique and I am a white belt. <laughs> I'm working on progressing through the rank. Um, and in this case, one technique, assuming safety uh, is present, the child's safe, one technique is is to be sure they get back in and do the activity. Um, and one way to do that is to actively ignore the crying, the negative behavior, and encourage positive approach behaviors. And um, just so I also say it, that none of that's my language. That's all from from Dr. Dr. Furr. Um, and at this point, I mean, my mind is, is whirling. There's so much going on. I, I have to step back and think about so many things. Um, but why don't we just recap, right? First, uh, we discover that child, when children cry, they are communicating. And so like any reasonable adult, we should try and listen to that communication. Now, as children get older, um, old enough to use their words, we have a responsibility to teach them to do that. And one way to teach them um, is to remove them from the immediate situation and talk to them. Um, but that's not always feasible. Um, so, you know, they have to get back in the activity either way. As long as things are safe, then maybe they just push through it. Um, but the goal here is for them to learn to self-soothe. I'm like that the highest goal here is that they figure out they shouldn't cry on their own. Now, with our love and guidance and support, not our direct attention to the crying. And that's again fundamentally different than I've ever really thought about because I always address the negative behavior. But a better way 
to accomplish that goal is to actually ignore the negative behavior you don't want. Don't give it any attention while at the same time promoting the positive behaviors that you do. And again, this isn't things I've ever thought about or care to think about because I just assumed I know what I'm doing, right? I mean, I'm a grown man, so that qualifies me to be a good parent. (laughs) Uh, No, that's obviously not true. Um, Does walking into a martial arts studio make you a black belt? I mean, obviously, that's not true. It takes years in martial arts to understand even a small portion of what it means to be um, a great martial artist, to master a technique. Um, and, and in fact, anything, anything worth doing takes years to master and parenting and training children isn't any different. And when I think about the amount of time I spend training physically versus the amount of time I spend training emotionally, it's, it's actually kind of embarrassing. Um, but just like in nature, everyone knows how to throw a kick. Everyone also knows how to respond to crying. We're all doing the best we can, but still the analogy holds after years of training in martial arts, I'll know how to throw strong and safe kicks. I'll know how to control my punches and kicks and not injure somebody, but use them if I need to in the case of a emergency situation or in tournaments or wherever it's appropriate. Um, well, I'm, I'm trying to do the same thing here. I hope after years of training in this stuff, the emotional world of, of, of uh, my kids that someday I'll be able to teach my children and other students that I work with how to navigate something like crying safely and with equal strength and power that we use in the physical world, but now in the emotional world. And, you know, really when I take a step back and think about that, you know, my nine-year-old someday may find himself in a situation where he's got to throw that sidekick to get out of a, a bad situation, but hopefully he never does. And the statistical likelihood is probably really close to zero that he ever will. But how many times is he going to find himself in a situation where he has to deal with crying? And if the main source of knowledge and learning from which he's going to learn how to handle that is from me and his mom and parenting and from coaches and instructors and teachers who are in his life, then shouldn't we all desire to be better? Shouldn't we desire to be black belts in the world of emotional learning? And so far, of all the things I've learned as a martial artist, recognizing that I need to be a better father has by far been the most important. Huge shout out to Dr. Jamie Furr, clinical assistant professor at Florida International University, and also to Dr. Carolyn Becker, psychology professor at Trinity University, for connecting the two of us. I also want to thank my martial arts instructor, Master Jose Ramirez of the Christian Taekwondo League, for going with me on this journey to explore emotional learning. The road is long and winding and painful, and I'm really, really grateful to not be alone goal of the Taekwondo Daddy podcast is not only to provide educational information about martial arts, but to explore topics that make us better parents, better instructors. I hope this topic does for you even half as much as it's done for me. And if you like what we're doing, join in on the conversation by liking us on Facebook, reviewing us wherever you get your podcasts, or 
jump over, over to taekwondaddy.com and buy a shirt. Either way, remember to train hard and parent harder. <laughs>